Good morning, Veritas. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning. What a privilege to worship with you. And uh, maybe you're starting school, uh, you're new to town. We're just, as people come into town, we just want to welcome you and, and thank you for joining us. Uh, people online, I think Dubuque is, is watching as well, and they're going to be, uh, we'll be launching that here uh, in a couple weeks. Salt Company, their Salt Company kicks off this week. So a lot of very cool things happening. Uh, we're finishing our study through the three chapters, Romans 6, 7, and 8, and we're finishing up Romans 8 this morning. So the disclaimer about this sermon, I'm about to read to you the most glorious text in the Bible, one of them, I believe. Anything I say will only diminish the glory of what I'm about to read to you. So this is God's word, uh, and the commentary I add to it hopefully will, uh, will help us give us some insight, but, but this is God's word, and I want to read Romans 8, 28 through 39. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All things work together. That's a bold claim. Everything in your life is perfectly coming together. I don't know anyone on planet Earth who would describe their life that way. And yet, that's what Paul says is true for the believer. Your life is like a tapestry, like a canvas. Imagine you looking up to heaven and, and God's up there. When I think working together, I think of an artist who's a, a painting or something, I think of weaving, like weaving this beautiful knitting, crocheting, whatever he's doing up there. We're looking up at it and it's, he's weaving it all together for something good and beautiful. Every stroke perfectly woven together. Even as I was greeting uh, you as you walked in this morning, 
looking at people in the foyer, interacting with you this week. I think of the objection. This is obviously problematic for those of us who live on earth and say, wait, you're telling me that the tragedy, that illness, that very bad thing that happened to me was good? I'm starting off with this passage struggling to agree with this statement that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. But the important thing as we start this is this statement for the good. How do you define the good? What I think of as the good is the good is me healed. The good is me hitting the game-winning shot. The good is me with a great career, successful. Me with a big bank account. Me in a different set of circumstances. That to me sounds like the good. Me not suffering is the good. But what's the good in the text? What does he say? Right here. Let me finish the verse. The good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined. So we have some big terms here. He's talking about called, foreknew, predestined. Those are some big words, foreknew. That word, there are some words that kind of lose their, their potency when we translate them to English. We think about foreknowledge as, what is that? Is that is that like a, it's not just a chronological thing. Like God knew ahead of time all the people that would choose him. That's what his foreknowledge is. Like God sees the future and he's kind of watching it unfold. And he's like, oh yeah, I knew that Mark was going to receive Jesus in junior high. I, I knew that was going to happen. Is that what foreknowledge is? Well, in, in Hebrew, the idea is Deep intimacy. There's deep intimacy to this word foreknowledge. For example, if you look at Amos 3, this is an example of this. We see this all over the Old Testament. But he says, for example, I have known, that, there's that word, he's, he's known only you out of all the clans of the earth. God is speaking to his people and he's saying, hey, I've only known you, Israel. Is God saying there, that he's never heard of the Babylonians and Assyrians and Hittites and Jebusites, all the people of, is he saying, I've, I've never heard of those guys. I don't even know who those people are. No, what is he saying in Amos? He's saying, you Israel, I've known you, known you, I've, I've called you. I set my love on you. Remember last week, I adopted you into my family. That's a choice that God made to draw in Israel. Growing up, we had a youth retreat speaker named Dave Busby. Dave Busby was picked on a lot at, in school, in elementary school, middle school, because Dave was born with cystic fibrosis. Basically, a death sentence for a little child. Struggled to breathe. Something else happened to Dave 
as a young kid. He contracted polio, and it affected his ability to walk, and so he would just limp around. And when he was alone, he would hurt himself, and he would punch his little skinny legs until they bruised because he hated his disability. He was on the playground for the much-anticipated basketball game. All the kids would line up, and they would pick the two captains, the two stud upperclassmen, and they stood out there as this line of kids stood up, and little Dave Busby was the kid on the end, and Dave waited as the first captain picked the best kid out in the line. And Dave put his head down, expecting the usual humiliation of last pick, or worse, to be not picked at all. So he stands there with his head down, and the second captain goes, The second captain was Dave's brother. And Dave looks at, Dave's brother looks at all the people in the line, and he looks at Dave, and he says, I take Dave. And Dave slowly stumbles his way over to his brother and buries his head in his chest. And his brother puts his arm around and they just have this moment on the playground. Dave was chosen. That is you. If you know Jesus, that's you. That's grace. When we sing songs like Amazing Grace... That's what it feels like to be loved by God in our condition, chosen, loved. And we know this, right? We know that we're not Christians because we're smarter than everybody else. We were more humble, so we figured it out. It doesn't make sense. I don't know why. It's not even fair in my mind that I'm a Christian, that Jesus loves me. But nothing can change that I'm loved by God. Nothing can change that. I do know this. I'm loved with an everlasting love, Jeremiah 31. And that's what Paul says here about God's foreknowledge, this divine election of God. But still, we haven't answered the question because if we're going to understand this passage, it hinges on this. We have to understand what is the good that he's talking about here. What's the eternal predestined purpose of God for me? Here it is, verse 29. He says, to be conformed to the image of his son. This Project that God is doing, this 
canvas and thread and work of art that God is weaving together, we know what it is. He tells us the purpose is so that Mark Arendt will be transformed into the image of Jesus. And just put your name in there. The good that God is working all things together for is you becoming more like Jesus. That's what God is doing. So our first point here is God is determined to accomplish the good of transforming Christians to be like Jesus. God is determined. God is strong-willed about this. You being transformed to be like Jesus. Now I say transforming Christians. Most people, a lot of people, if you ask them this question, this is like kind of one of the assumed things in our culture. If you say this, most people will agree with it. Hey, everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. Just never say that to someone who's suffering and had a really bad week. Hey, everything happens for a reason. Uh, that's true, but think about this. Who does Paul say all the good is working together for? Those who love God. So this truth, Romans 8, 28, is only good news if you know Jesus Christ and you love him. Yes, he's working it together, but we know what the good is. It's, it's transforming us to be like Jesus. So I guess the question here is, do you know Jesus? Because this is not good news for you if you don't know Jesus. And I would invite you right now, you're like, well, I don't know if I'm chosen. Well, just right now, receive Jesus, and then you'll know you're chosen. You're loved. Receive him. Give your life to him. When he moves toward you at the playground to say, you, don't run away, just receive him. Let him find you this morning. That's what God wants for you, but he's determined to do this. Once that process begins of you with Jesus, oh, he's going to bring it to completion. And he continues in verse 29, so predestined to be conformed to the images of his son, listen, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God is, he's saying, God is restoring humanity. He's creating a new race of people, as it were. And Jesus was the first in line. Jesus was the first new human, if you will, the firstborn. And all of us follow in his steps of this new redeemed people of God in verse 30. And so those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified, called you justified you. He made you righteous. That's the theme of Romans. And then he says, glorified. Now, some of you who are paying attention here, those are all past tense. Called, that already happened. Justified, that already happened. Glorified, that already happened. Wait, glorified? Do you know what that word means? That is the moment when you 
are transformed. You, your lowly body, this earthen vessel, this tent, is going to be transformed to be like his glorious body. Why does Paul say, it's already happened? It's, you're glorified. Last I checked, nobody in this room had a glorified body. You all look great, but none of you look as good as you will when you're in heaven. Why does he use past tense? He should say, will be glorified someday. I know the justify, I know I'm forgiven, but the new body part, the glory part, I, I don't know about that. And he's already said earlier in the chapter that creation is groaning, waiting for the glory to come. Why does he say now it's past tense? Well, this is what theologians refer to as the golden chain of redemption. This unbreakable chain of your eternal destiny that your body and soul will be transformed to a future glory, that is a done deal. And he says, verse 31, what then are we to say about these things? Here's what I see a lot of people saying about these things. Let's stop and answer that rhetorical question a lot of people will stop there. What are we to say about these things? Well, here's what I say. If God controls everything, then humans are just robots. If he chose this person to go to heaven, he must have chosen that person to go to hell. And it, all of a sudden, it turns into this hot mess of a theological argument. Some of us approach it that way. But Paul, his intent is not, this is kind of a warning on Romans 8, is that Paul wants us to be comforted, not confused. The answer to that rhetorical question, what do we say about the sovereign election of God for us as believers? If God is for us, who is against us? Who is against us? And I hear a lot of people thinking about the answer to that question. Well, I'll tell you who's against us. And they start listening. All our political enemies are against us, all those bad nations out there, the people stealing my stuff, the people that are wanting to hurt me, they're against us. Again, not confusion, comfort. The point here is, listen, if you're a Christian, it's not that you don't have opposition or enemies, it's that no one can fight against you and win. Anyone who tries to touch you will be annihilated. God's already got it taken care of. So the second point here is, if point number one is true, that God's determined to the good of making us like Jesus, if that's true, then Christians are invincible. That's amazing. Like the superhero at the end of the movie that always wins. Always invincible. Verse 32, he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? What he's saying here is, God gave you Jesus. Duh. He's going to give you whatever else you need to be changed into the likeness of Jesus. That's what God is going to do. He's gonna, he gave you Jesus. How obviously 
If he would give you that, he has no greater gift to give. He's going to give you everything else you will need to accomplish the good. So we stop here with an objection. Because some of you are like, all right, I'm starting to track with this, but here's the problem. I can think of a lot of things that might separate me from the love of God. The next seven verses, Paul anticipates that objection. And so he cross-examines his own claim that God's working it all and that nothing can separate. So point number three is, let's test it. Let's test the claim that Christians are invincible. You ready? Surely something can break that golden chain. Verse 33 Let's start with this. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. He starts talking about, he begins this cross-examination of this claim with the accuser accusations. In the Bible, who is the accuser? Who's the accuser in the Bible? The person whose name is the accuser. Revelation 12.10 tells us it refers to the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. The accuser is Satan. 24-7, Satan's job is he's constantly taking me to court. He's constantly suing me. And he's bringing me into court before God. And he's like, look at this pitiful servant named Mark. And it's just constant litigation in my life. Any of you been sued? It's terrible. I've never been sued. I know people that have. It's stressful. It raises the blood pressure. You go to bed thinking it at night. You just, it's always on your mind. The lawsuit, the lawsuit. And, and you're just thinking, I'm, I might be guilty. I might be sentenced. I might be, all these things. Hope I have a good lawyer. Work hard, law students. <laughs> okay. uh, because sometimes you get sued and people like to sue and Satan loves to sue. He loves litigation and his job, Revelation 12, he is constantly suing you, accusing you. And every time Satan takes me to court, he always has a case against me because I'm left there with my thoughts like, yeah, totally. I didn't pray enough today. I don't even know if I thought about God. Was I an atheist today? I don't know. Like, he's got a point. Yeah, I totally slandered that person. Somebody clicks play. Satan has like the recorder. He's like, well, you want to know what you said? Boom. You're like, ooh, that was mean. That was bad. Because I love that person. And I totally just knife in the back, like slander, gossip. It's all... What, what I did last night, totally. Replay it on the screen, the accuser. That's what Satan does. Always pressing charges. But who is the one who condemns? 
Paul answers the question. He says, Christ Jesus. But he says, is the one who died. That's such great news. Because here's the point. Satan's, we're we're testing it. Christians are invincible. Well, what about when the accuser comes? Am I invincible then? Because I think I'm guilty. And he says, all right, test number one. Satan's accusations can't win. Why? Because Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the one who can condemn. When you sin, you don't sin against Satan. You sin against God, but God died for your sin. Do you see his thought process here? Jesus is at the right hand of God in the courtroom. Satan's accusing, Satan's condemning, Satan's suing you. And what is Jesus doing? What does Paul say? What is Jesus doing? He's interceding. He's coming between. And he's saying, not guilty. Forgiven. I love that old hymn, that Wesley hymn. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears and rise. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. That is intercession. And that's happening 24-7 because who is the one who condemns? Well, Christ Jesus, he died. Satan's accusations can't win against you. Verse 35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, because of you, We are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul is quoting Psalm 44. And in that psalm, I think it's hilarious that psalms like this are even in the Bible. Because if someone wrote a song about this today, like we would ban them from Christian radio. Because here's what Psalm 44 is saying. God, if you read Psalm 44, it's actually hilarious. He's saying, God, we are helpless sheep. Remember, you called us sheep? And we're wandering around in the hill, and we're getting slaughtered one by one. This little group of people called the Israelites, we're helpless. We're getting picked off. We're sitting ducks. And God, you are sitting there watching it all happen. And as these nations come in, just picking us off, taking us out. Our enemies are winning, and you are watching it happen. So you know what, God? Because you're in control of everything and you're not doing anything about it, it's like you, God, are slaughtering us all day long. Anyone who has ever walked with Jesus has had that feeling 
God, you are all-powerful, and yet you are sitting here watching me suffer. That psalm is in the Bible. If you've ever felt that way, read the psalm. God can handle your struggle and doubt. And in verse 20, Psalm 44, 23, he says, Wake up, Lord. Why are you sleeping? Get up. Don't reject us forever. Was God sleeping? Well, the psalmist didn't know what you know. You have a massive advantage over the person who was writing that psalm. Because you are looking back at the cross. And every time you look at the cross of Christ, you are confronted with a God who himself said, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes something like Psalm 44. And what you have seen is the all-powerful God who's weaving everything together for good used the suffering of Jesus to save the world. And if God can bring meaning out of his suffering, then surely he can bring meaning out of yours. That's the advantage you have over the psalmist. In verse 34, he says, he died, but even more was raised. Here's the second test, suffering. Can suffering win? Can suffering break the golden chain of redemption? Suffering can't win, why? Because of the certainty of the resurrection. The resurrection, Jesus will take your dead body and raise it up to a glorious body. It's like it's already happened, glorified. So we can say with Elizabeth Elliot, as she says, suffering is never for nothing. Great book that we have at the Resource Center. Suffering is never for nothing. In 1987, scientists started construction on an incredible idea. Here was the idea. What if we could create an indoor paradise? What if we could do Genesis 1? In the beginning, humans created a new heavens and earth, and they did this. This is amazing. It's just north of Tucson, Arizona. They created an indoor paradise, a planet Earth enclosed in glass, a giant terrarium that they called Biosphere 2. This is like Earth 2.0. Isn't that an amazing idea? I mean, they had a rainforest, they had a river, they had an ocean with waves that were controlled. This huge glass Earth, enclosed in glass, kind of earth, but something happened. The trees, it was great. The trees just grew up super fast because the wind never blew too hard. It was just a nice, peaceful utopia. But as the trees grew up, 
all of a sudden, they started falling over. Why did the trees fall over? This is a quote. The trees suffered from edulation and weakness caused by lack of stress wood normally created in response to winds and natural conditions. As it turns out, wind plays a major role in the health of a tree. Without wind, a tree can't grow and stand. I mean, it can grow fast, but it'll fall over because it needs to develop what scientists call stress wood. Here's me. Suffering makes me doubt. I doubt I'm suffering, and I wanted two things. God, do you love me? Or God, maybe you're not powerful enough to fix this situation. And so what I do is I take matters into my own hands. I can no longer trust God. And so what I do is I want to build a giant terrarium around my life. I want to get money and power and position because I don't want to need a sovereign God who's going to cause the wind to blow on this tree. And so I'm going to put a terrarium around myself and my kids. And inside the terrarium, I'm going to bubble wrap them so they never get hurt. Okay, that's parenting today. So I don't want to leave anything to chance. The world is a dangerous place. I'm not going to be a missionary to that place. I'm not going to move to that state or that country because I want a terrarium. I don't like wind. The problem is God uses the wind. God uses the suffering. So he concludes, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This last category, all these things could be categorized as the junk drawer of all possible calamities. We've got Satan, we've got suffering, now we just have all things. So the last point is situations can't win. Why? Because God is sovereign. Situations. That's what we say when something bad happens. My pipes are leaking, and now they've been leaking for a year, and I have a mold problem in my basement, and I look around and I say, I have a situation on my hands. Something bad happens, you have a situation. Well, situations. Famine. Famine can't win. Natural disasters, water shortages, global warming, food shortages. That's a situation. Can that separate you from the love of God? No. What about I'm naked? He says naked. I can't afford clothes because I've lost my job and I'm homeless. I was trying to serve Jesus and I got kicked out of town and 
almost beaten to death, so that's a situation. Could that separate me? No. What about powers? Oh, I hear Christians like, who can be against us? I'll tell you. I've been reading, and these people are conspiring to do this, and I mean, we got all this bad stuff out there. I mean, we got big tech, big pharma, government, and like we get consumed with the people who are against us and the enemies, and Paul's saying, that's a wrong focus. Powers, totalitarian regimes. What if you lived in 1984, some Orwellian dystopia, and the surveillance state was watching over all your actions. Maybe that could separate me from the love of God. We've got to build a terrarium. We've got to fight, right? And what does Paul say? Powers, that Roman emperor who's going to kill me. God's going to annihilate him. Like, he's going to cut off my head and we are totally going to destroy him. Powers cannot separate you from the love of God. Well, God is weaving it all together for good. And we look up at the canvas and that thread. It's just this mangled thread. And we see no purpose. But from God's eternal perspective, looking down, he sees a beautiful work of art. God sees beauty where we see chaos. God is sovereign, and he's working it for the good. I came across this quote from R.C. Sproul. He says, there, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. If God is not truly in control, then how, we, how can we trust that God will make good on his promise if he doesn't have control of what's going to happen? This is the promise. You will never be separated from God. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about that. And that's good for me and for you. The good is not you in a better set of circumstances. The good is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray together. I just want to close by asking you a few questions, and worship team is just going to come and lead us, and we'll just kind of let this time of prayer go into our time of worship. I just want to ask you some questions. Number one, do you know how much you are loved by God? Do you know how much God loves you? Second question is, do you trust him? Because right now, you're experiencing some accusations. You're experiencing some wind. Do you trust him?
just respond in silence and into a time of worship together.